0: Chapter six. Part one. Of Mount Royal, Volume three, by Mary Elizabeth Braden. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter six. I will have no mercy on him. Part one. The Buenos Aires steamer was within sight of land, English land. Those shining lights yonder were the twin lanterns of the lizard leonard and his friend paced the bridge smoking their cigars and looking towards that double star which shone out as one light in the distance and thinking that they were going back to civilization conventional habits a world which must seem cramped and narrow not much better than the squirrel's cage seems to the squirrel after the vast width and margin of that wilder freer world they had just left where men and women were not much more civilized than the unbroken horses that were brought out struggling and roped in among a team of old stagers to be dragged along anyhow for the first mile or so rebellious and wondering and to fall in with the necessities of the case somehow before the stage was done there was no thrill of patriotic rapture in the breast of either traveller as he watched yonder well-known light brightening on the dark horizon leonard had left his country too often to feel any deep emotion at returning to it he had none of those strong feelings which mark a man as the son of the soil and make it seem to him that he belongs to one spot of earth and can neither live nor die happily anywhere else the entire globe was his country a world created for him to roam about in climbing all its hills shooting in all its forests fishing in all its rivers exhausting all the sport and amusement that was to be had out of it and with no anchor to chain him down to any given spot yet though he had none of the deep feeling of the exile returning to the country of his birth he was not without emotion as he saw the lizard-light broadening and yellowing under the pale beams of a young moon he was thinking of his wife the wife whose face he had not seen since that gloomy morning at mount royal when she sat pale and calm in her place at the head of his table maintaining her dignity as the mistress of his house albeit he knew her heart was breaking from the hour of her return from the kiev they had been parted she had kept her room guarded by jessie and he had been told significantly that it was not well they should meet how would she receive him now what were her thoughts and feelings about that dead man the man whom she had loved and he had hated not only because his wife loved him though that reason was strong enough for hatred but because the man was in every attribute so much his own superior never had leonard tregonell felt such keen anxiety as he felt now when he speculated upon his wife's greeting when he tried to imagine how they two would feel and act standing face to face after nearly a year of severance. The correspondence between them had been of the slightest. For the first six months his only home letters had been from Miss Bridgman, curt, business-like communications, telling him of his boy's health and general progress, and of any details about the estate which it was his place to be told. Of Christabel she wrote as briefly as possible. Mrs. Tregonell is a little better, mrs tregonell is gradually regaining strength the doctor considers mrs tregonell much improved and so on later there had been letters from christabel letters written in switzerland in which the writer confined herself almost entirely to news of the boy's growth and improvement and to the particulars of their movements from one place to another letters which gave not the faintest indication of the writer's frame of mind as devoid of sentiment as an official communication from one legation to another he was going back to mount royal therefore in profound ignorance of his wife's feelings whether he would be received with smiles or frowns with tears or sullen gloom albeit not of a sensitive nature this uncertainty made him uncomfortable and he looked at yonder faint grey shore the peaks and pinnacles of that wild western coast without any of those blissful emotions which the returning wanderer always experiences in poetry Plymouth, however, where they went ashore next morning, seemed a very enjoyable place after the cities of South America. It was not so picturesque a town, nor had it that rowdy air and dissipated flavor which Mr. Tregonell appreciated in the cities of the South, but it had a teeming life and perpetual movement which were unknown on the shores of the Pacific, the press and hurry of many industries, the steady fervor of a town where wealth is made by honest labor, the intensity of a place which is in some wise the cradle of naval warfare mr tregonell breakfasted and lunched at the duke of cornwall strolled on the hoe played two or three games on the first english billiard-table he had seen for a year and found a novel delight in winners and losers an afternoon train took the travellers on to launceston where the mount royal wagonette and a cart for the luggage were waiting for them at the station everything right at the mount asked leonard as nichols touched his hat yes sir he asked for no details but took the reins from nichols without another word captain vandelaar jumped up by his side nichols got in at the back with a lot of the smaller luggage gun cases dressing-bags dispatch boxes and away they went up the castle hill and then sharp round to the right and off at a dashing pace along the road to the moor it was a two hours drive even for the best goers but mr tregonell spoke hardly a dozen times during the journey smoking all the way and with his eyes always on his horses at last they wound up the hill to mount royal and passed the lodge and saw all the lights of the old wide-spreading tudor front shining upon them through the thickening grey of early evening a good old place isn't it said leonard just a little moved at sight of the house in which he had been born a man might come home to a worse shelter this man might come home to lodgings in chelsea said jack vandeleur touching himself lightly on the breast with a grim laugh it's a glorious old place and you needn't apologize for being proud of it and now we've come back i hope you are going to be jolly for you've been uncommonly glum while we've been away the house looks cheerful doesn't it i should think it must be full of company not likely answered leonard christabel never cared about having people we should have lived like hermits if she had had her way then if the house isn't full of people all i can say is there's a good deal of candlelight going to waste said captain vandeleur They were driving up to the porch by this time. The door stood wide open. Servants were on the watch for them. The hall was all aglow with light and fire. People were moving about near the hearth. It was a relief to Leonard to see this life in brightness. He had feared to find a dark and silent house, a melancholy welcome, all things still in mourning for the untimely dead. A ripple of laughter floated from the hall as Leonard drew up his horses and two tall slim figures with fluffy heads short-waisted gowns and big sashes came skipping down the broad shallow steps my sisters by jove cried jack delighted how awfully jolly of mrs tregonell to invite them leonard's only salutation to the damsels was a friendly nod he brushed by them as they grouped themselves about their brother like a new edition of laocalon without the snakes or the three graces without the grace and hurried into the hall eager to be face to face with his wife she came forward to meet him looking her loveliest dressed as he had never seen her dressed before with a style as chic and a daring more appropriate to the theatre francais than to a cornish squire's house she who even in the height of the london season had been simplicity itself recalling to those who most admired her the picture of that chaste and unworldly maiden who dwelt beside the dove now wore an elaborate costume of brown velvet and satin in which a louis quinze velvet coat with large cut steel buttons and Mechlin jabot was the most striking feature her fair soft hair was now fluffy and stood up in an infinity of frizzy curls from the broad white forehead diamond solitaires flashed in her ears her hands glittered with the rainbow light of old family rings which in days gone by she had been wont to leave in the repose of an iron safe the whole woman was changed she came to meet her husband with a society smile shook hands with him as if he had been a commonplace visitor he was too startled to note the death-like coldness of that slender hand and welcomed him with a conventional inquiry about his passage from buenos Aires. he stood transfixed overwhelmed by surprise the room was full of people there was mrs fairfax torrington liveliest and most essentially modern of well-preserved widows always dans le mouvement as she said of herself and there lolling against the high oak chimney-piece with an air of fatuous delight in his own attractiveness was that baron de pseudo artist poet and littérateur who five seasons ago had been an object of undisguised detestation with christabel he too was essentially in the movement esthetic cynical agnostic thought-reading spiritualistic always blowing the last fashionable bubble and making his bubbles bigger and brighter than other people's a man who prided himself upon his intensity in every pursuit from love-making to gormandize. there again marked out from the rest by a thoroughly prosaic air which in these days of artistic sensationalism is in itself a distinction pale placid taking his ease in a low basket chair with his languid hand on randy's black muzzle sat mr fitzjessy the journalist proprietor and editor of the sling a fashionable weekly the man who was always smiting the Goliaths of pretence and dishonesty with a pen that was sharper than any stone that ever david slung against the foe he was such an amiable-looking man had such a power of obliterating every token of intellectual force and fire from the calm surface of his countenance that people seeing him for the first time were apt to stare at him in blank wonder at his innocent aspect was this the wielder of that scathing pen was this the man who wrote not with ink but with aquafortis even his placid matter-of-fact speech was at first a little disappointing it was only by gentlest degrees that the iron hand of satire made itself felt under the velvet glove of conventional good manners leonard had met mr fitz in london at the clubs and elsewhere and had felt that vague awe which the provincial feels for the embodied spirit of metropolitan intellect in the shape of a famous journalist it was needful to be civil to such men in order to be let down gently in their papers one never knew when some rash unpremeditated act might furnish matter for a paragraph which would mean social annihilation there were other guests grouped about the fireplace little monty the useful and good-humoured country-house hack colonel blathwaite of the kildare cavalry a noted amateur actor reciter waltzer spirit-rapper invaluable in a house full of people a tall slim-waisted man who rode nine stone and at forty contrived to look seven-and-twenty the rev st bernard fatty an anglican curate who carried ritualism to the extremest limit consistent with the retention of his stipend as a minister of the church of england and who was always at loggerheads with some of his parishioners there were mr and mrs st Aubin and their two daughters county people with loud voices horsey and doggy and horticultural always talking garden when they were not talking stable or kennel. These were neighbors for whom Christabel had cared very little in the past. Leonard was considerably astonished at finding them domiciled at Mount Royal. "'And you had a nice passage,' said his wife, smiling at her lord. "'Will you have some tea?' It seemed a curious kind of welcome to a husband after a year's absence, but Leonard answered feebly that he would take a cup of tea. One of the numerous tea-tables had been established in a corner near the fire, and Miss Bridgman, in neat grey silk and linen collar as of old, was officiating, with Mr. Fatty in attendance, to distribute the cups. "'No tea, thanks,' said Jack Vandellar, coming in with his sister still entwined about him, still faintly suggestive of that poor man and the sea-serpents. "'Would it be too dreadful if I were to suggest S. and B?' Jessie Bridgman touched a spring bell on the tea-table and gave the required order. There was a joviality, a l'essie in the air of the place, with which soda and brandy seemed quite in harmony. Everything in the house seemed changed to Leonard's eye. And yet the furniture, the armor, the family portraits, brown and indistinguishable in this doubtful light, were all the same. There were no flowers about in tubs or on tables. That subtle grace, as of a thoughtful woman's hand ruling and arranging everything, artistic even where seeming most careless, was missing papers books were thrown anyhow upon the tables whips carriage rugs wraps hats encumbered the chairs near the door half a dozen dogs pointers setters collie sprawled or prowled about the room in no wise did his house now resemble the orderly mansion which his mother had ruled so long and which his wife had maintained upon exactly the same lines after her aunt's death he had grumbled at what he called a silly observance of his mother's fads the air of the house was now much more in accordance with his own view of life and yet the change angered as much as it perplexed him where's the boy he asked exploring the hall and its occupants with a blank stare in his nursery where should he be exclaimed christabel lightly i thought he would have been with you i thought he might have been here to bid me welcome home he had made a picture in his mind almost involuntarily of the mother and child she calm and lovely as one of murillo's madonnas with the little one on her knee there was no vein of poetry in his nature yet unconsciously the memory of such pictures had associated itself with his wife's image and instead of that holy embodiment of maternal love there flashed and sparkled before him this brilliant woman with fair fluffy hair and louis Quinze coat all a-glitter with cut steel home echoed christabel mockingly how sentimental you have grown i've no doubt the boy will be charmed to see you especially if you have brought him some south american toys but i thought it would bore you to see him before you had dined he shall be on view in the drawing-room before dinner if you would really like to see him so soon don't trouble said leonard curtly i can find my way to the nursery he went upstairs without another word leaving his friend jack seated in the midst of the cheerful circle drinking soda-water and brandy and talking of their adventures upon the backbone of south america delicious country said de cazalet who talked remarkably good english with just the faintest hibernian accent i have ridden over every inch of it ah mrs tregonell that is the soil for poetry and adventure a land of extinct volcanoes If Byron had known the shores of the Amazon, he would have struck a deeper note of passion than any that was ever inspired by the Dardanelles or the Bosporus. Sad that so grand a spirit should have pined in the prison house of a worn out world. I have always understood that Byron got some rather strong poetry out of Switzerland and Italy, murmured Mr FitzJessy meekly. Weak and thin to what he might have written had he known the pampas, said the Baron. You have done the pampas, said Mr FitzJessy i have lived amongst wild horses and wilder humanity for months at a stretch and you have published a volume of verses another of my youthful follies but i do not place myself upon a level with byron i should if i were you said mr Fitzjessy. it would be an original idea and in an age marked by a total exhaustion of brain-power an original idea is a pearl of price what kind of dogs did you see in your travels asked emily st a well-grown upstanding young woman in a severe tailor gown of undyed homespun two or three very fine breeds of mongrels i adore mongrels exclaimed Mopsy. i think that kind of dog which belongs to no particular breed which has been ill-used by london boys and which follows one to one's doorstep is the most faithful and intelligent of the whole canine race huxley may exalt blenheim spaniels in the nearest thing to human nature but my dog tim which is something between a lurcher a collie and a bull is ever so much better than human nature the blenheim is greedy luxurious and lazy and generally dies in middle life from the consequences of overfeeding drawled mr fitzjessie i don't think huxley is very far out i would back a cornish sheepdog against my animal in creation said christabel patting randy who was standing amiably on end with his poor paws on the cushioned elbow of her chair Do you know that these dogs smile when they are pleased, and cry when they are grieved, and they will mourn for a master with a fidelity unknown in humanity? Which as a rule does not mourn, said Fitzjessie. It only goes into mourning. And so the talk went on, always running upon trivialities, glancing from theme to theme, a mere battledore and shuttlecock conversation, making a mock of most things and most people. Christabel joined in it all and some of the bitterest speech that was spoken in that hour before the sounding of the seven-o'clock gong fell from her perfect lips. "'Did you ever see such a change in any one as in Mrs. Tregonell? asked Dopsy of Mopsy, as they elbowed each other before the looking-glass, the first armed with a powder-puff, the second with a little box containing the implements required for the production of piquant eyebrows. "'A wonderful improvement,' answered Mopsy. "'She's ever so much easier to get on with.' I didn't think it was in her to be so thoroughly chic do you know i really liked her better last year when she was frumpy and dowdy faltered Dopsy. i wasn't able to get on with her but i couldn't help looking up to her and feeling that after all she was the right kind of woman and now and now she condescends to be human to be one of us and the consequence is that her house is three times as nice as it was last year Said Mopsy, turning the corner of an eyebrow with a bold but careful hand and sending a sharp elbow into Dopsy's face during the operation, I wish you'd be a little more careful, ejaculated Dopsy. I wish you'd contrive not to want the glass exactly when I do retorted mopsy. How do you like the French baron? asked Dopsy when a brief silence had restored her equanimity. French indeed, he is no more French than I am. Mr. Fitzjesse told me that he was born and brought up in Jersey, that his father was an Irish major on half pay, and his mother a circus rider. But how does he come by his title, if it is a real title? Fitzjesse says the title is right enough. One of his father's ancestors came to the south of Ireland after the revocation of something, a treaty at Nancy, I think he said. He belonged to an old Huguenot family, those people who were massacred in the opera, don't you know? And the title had been allowed to go dead till this man married a tremendously rich Sheffield cutler's daughter and bought the old estate in Province and got himself enrolled in the French peerage. Romantic, isn't it? Very. What became of the Sheffield cutler's daughter? She drank herself to death two years after her marriage. Fitz Jessie says they both lived upon brandy, but she hadn't been educated up to it, and it killed her. A curious kind of man for Mrs. Tregonell to invite here, not quite good style. Perhaps not, but he's very amusing. End of chapter 6, part 1